Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. We've made it to Wednesday. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Here's how we're making you smarter today. The rapid pace of the removal of Confederate monuments this year. Plus, the big wins coming out of the NBA bubble. And in case you missed it last night, it was a virtual tour of every American state and territory for the official roll call at the Democratic National Convention. John Lewis marched across this bridge in 1965 to demand the right to vote. And the great state of Alabama cast 52 votes for our next president of these United States, Joe Biden. California, home to our next vice president, Kamala Harris, cast 263 votes for our next president, Joe Biden. Delaware is proud to cast its 32 votes for our favorite son and our next president, our friend, Delaware, Joe Biden. And in the end, Joe Biden secured the official nomination for the Democratic Party for president. And now on to today's one big thing, how to understand last night's stock market rally. The S&P 500 closed at a record high on Tuesday. This stock market recovery has been so fast, something that usually takes years took months. And it comes as millions of Americans remain out of work during one of the worst economic downturns in U.S. history. Felix Salmon is Axios's chief financial correspondent, and he's here to talk with me now about how we should understand this new record and why is the stock market going up? You might well think, why is the stock market going up? Because normally the stock market goes up when there is economic good news. And this is something which I've been saying for many years, but I think this has really driven it home more than ever, is that the stock market going up is not always a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing, and it could be going up precisely because everyone in the stock market, the people who own the companies, are actually happy that people are unemployed. Because unemployed people make it easier to hire people, easier to fire people. It gives your workforce much less bargaining power. It means you don't need to give them so much in the way of wages. You can keep more of the profits for yourself. And that's good for the owners of the company, which is the shareholders. It's bad for the country as a whole. When you look at how much the average worker makes versus how much the CEO makes, that gap has been continuing to get bigger. Do you feel like this is related to that? It's 100% related to that because the CEO's compensation is overwhelmingly in stock options. So when you have the stock price doing well and a bunch of workers getting laid off, then yeah, the workers see pay cuts and the CEO reaps all of the benefit of the stock market going up. So then for all of those people who are very concerned about whether or not the federal government will pass in another stimulus plan, what do you think this S&P record does to those negotiations? Again, thinking about the way that we tend to think of the stock market, if it's doing well, the economy's doing well. The economy maybe isn't quite as bad as it was in March, but it's still really bad. And all of that unemployment money has run out. And all of those people who are unemployed, they have nothing to fall back on right now. But what you don't have is the urgency that you had in March. What you don't have is the Republicans in particular really being worried about the economy because they see the stock market hitting record highs. And so they don't feel that it's as bad as it really is. I don't think it's just Republicans that think the economy is a stock market. I think that a lot of Americans think that. A lot of Americans with stocks might think that. Most Americans don't 
have a lot of stock holdings. It really doesn't affect your day-to-day -day life, especially if you're unemployed or going hungry or anything like that. You can't eat stocks. You can't sell stocks if you don't own them. You always have to remember when it comes to the stock market that these assets are overwhelmingly owned by the 1%. Felix Salmon is our chief financial correspondent, and you can get more insights like this by subscribing to his newsletter, Axios Capital. We'll be back in 15 seconds with why Confederate monuments are falling faster than ever before. Welcome back to Axios Today. Since the protests over the killing of George Floyd started, 59 Confederate symbols have been removed, relocated, or renamed. Leisha Brooks, the Southern Poverty Law Center's chief of staff, has been tracking Confederate symbols for the past three years. So we put out our report in 2015 identifying about 1,800 symbols of the Confederacy. We reissued the report in 2019. We saw another spike in interest around Confederate iconography after the Charlottesville white nationalist protests. So we decided to update the report at that time. The 59 monuments or statutes that have been removed or relocated since the George Floyd murder equal the amount that have been removed over the three years. And I wonder what you might say to people who think that these are statues and they're part of our history. Why do you think it's important that these things be removed? The movement to remove these icons of the Confederacy have always been about telling the true history. As we learn more as a people and we evolve as a people, we should continue to question who we honor and who we venerate in public space. In what ways have you seen the recent protests accelerate this then? There's certainly been activists on the ground, especially across the South and the Deep South, who have been for years trying to remove these monuments to white supremacy from public space. People just weren't paying attention to it. And so the fact that the Military Armed Services Committee moved immediately to rename 10 military installations that are named after Confederate leaders that NASCAR on their own with no urging moved to ban Confederate flags from their raceways. The significance of Mississippi removing their flag and removing the symbols of hate and oppression from public space. The fact that this went globally, where you have people in England who are also looking at who they venerate and why, that shows that change can happen when people are allowed to create the change that's needed. Leisha Brooks joined us from Montgomery, Alabama, where she's the Southern Poverty Law Center's chief of staff. Okay, it's finally here. The NBA playoffs started this week. Kendall Baker is Axios' sports editor, and he's here with me now to share in some of my excitement. First of all, just that the NBA has started back again and I get to watch my Miami Heat. But I wonder what your verdict is so far on the NBA season in the bubble. I think the overall takeaway, particularly from the, the seeding games, is that the on-court basketball is absolutely been a huge win. You add in the virtual fans, like I found myself many times feeling like I'm watching a normal game. And so I think that's really helped the bubble experience overall. So let's talk about the virtual fans for a minute, because this is a really innovative technology. Exactly. So you used a Microsoft 
tool that was supposed to simulate, you know, a professor looking at a classroom of students. So they've kind of taken that idea and turned those into virtual seats in a stadium. So they sprinkled in some celebrities here and there. So like Shaquille O'Neal was just like sitting in the fourth row the other night. And I think for the first few games, it was a little bit weird, but I think it's been a nice little element. Let's talk about what downsides there are to this. The games are being played in the afternoon. How is that working out? I think there's definitely challenges with these games. The timing of the games, the frequency. I do think the NBA has benefited greatly from having one bubble on the East Coast. The NBA's last game is starting at 9 p.m., which is pretty reasonable when you consider some of the games in the past have ended at like 1 or 2 in the morning. So I think the NBA, while there's certainly challenges with games starting so early, the fact that the last one ends relatively early, I think will help viewership. I think that's a pretty big win that hasn't been talked about too much. Kendall Baker is the sports editor for Axios. That's all we've got for you today. You can reach our team at podcasts at axios.com and you can always find me on Twitter at Nyla Voodoo. And we'd love it if you have time to leave us a review. That makes it easier for other people to find our podcast. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you back here tomorrow morning.